1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And we are
0: currently living through an absolutely shocking and disgusting heat wave. So I want to talk about our favorite ways to stay frosty on sultry summer days in the sorting chat. And specifically, Hannah, I want you to tell me how you are keeping your kitties cool
1: oh it's so important i don't have air conditioning and honestly like i can manage my own hot body wink by which i mean on the hottest days i just sit in in a cold bath for four hours (laughs) <laughs> fine. You can answer emails from the bathtub. It's fine.
0: Oh, yeah. Laptops on the edge of the bathtub are uh, just very good idea. <laughs>
1: it's so dangerous. Oh, my God. But the cats have been so hot. They just wear these little fur coats that they can't take <laughs> off. And they've just been... They're, like, out on the balcony every day, and I swear it's, like, cats as drawn by Salvador Dali. Like, they are they are <laughs> liquid. They are just liquid cats that are, like, like melting. And surprisingly, they don't like having, like, fans pointed at them full blast. <laughs> <laughs> like a kitty wind tunnel. So I followed the advice of my friend Amy and made these kitty ice beds Ooh. where you sort of arrange ice beads. <laughs> She's very small. She just wants to be warm all the time. But Al, who is a big boy, really got into those ice beds. (laughs) That's very tender.
0: I love that your cats are so, like, diametrically opposed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They are the opposite cats. Honestly, though, the ice bed worked so well for Al that I'm like, Could I make a giant Mm, ice mm bed for me? Like, what if I just cleared a space in my living room, made a huge circle of ice packs, put some wet towels over top and just lay in it myself? Mm -hmm. Like, is that a good idea? I mean, I feel like you could also, like,
0: just accomplish that by adding some pillows to your ice bath, right? So (laughs) just (laughs) hang out in your bathtub as you were, but... But just sacrifice some some pillows and blankets, you know? Just throw them
1: in there so that you're even more comfy. Wow. That's that. That is hot weather innovation, Marcel. Wow. <laughs> That's why we come to you for that sort of outside-the-box thinking.
0: I, not that long ago, during an excruciating peak in the heat wave purchased something called a cooling fan. And when I told Trevor, the erstwhile tech support <laughs> robot of our hearts... That I purchased a cooling fan. He was like, How is that different from a regular fan? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> like, Trevor, Trevor sh- and I are soulmates. <laughs> it's like a fan, but instead of what normal fans do, it keeps you cool. <laughs>
0: what? Yeah, so I think that's a solid example of Gemini
1: thinking versus Pisces thinking. <laughs> Incredible. Wishing everybody a very cooling fan.
0: Today's episode is all about readerly pleasure, and nothing would please me more than reviewing some key ideas in Revision.
1: Okay, Marcel, I'm going to start us off with a little bit of context. Because you explicitly requested a podcast episode about, and I quote, gay whimsy. And that request, which I am outright denying because I'm just a real, just a real pain in the ass, got me thinking about reading and pleasure and about the idea of loving books and finding joy in fandom, which are all ideas that we've engaged and in some cases critiqued throughout this podcast, both the original run and the reboot. So what I'm going to do in this episode is propose a sort of theoretical framework that can actually help us to think about the idea of taking pleasure in reading. But before we get there, I want us to take a look at some of the ways we've talked about pleasure in the Harry Potter books so far.
0: That sounds great. The idea that we should be able to take pleasure from these books, despite but never ignoring the harm caused by the author, has been foundational to the whole project of Witch please. Since the original run, we've been arguing that you can love something and critique it at the same time. I mean, we've argued that critique can even deepen your love of a text, you know, depending on how
1: you go about it. Exactly. And since the reboot began last year, we've also gestured towards some of the sites of that pleasure in the books and in our own reading experiences. Mm -hmm. For example, in the very first episode of the reboot, we talked about the appeal of the chosen one narrative as letting those of us who felt different or like we didn't fit in imagine the possibility of a kind of magical elsewhere where we will belong, right? Which is like so fundamental is this idea of being invited to Hogwarts And then in our queer theory episode, we deepened that analysis by looking at Rachel O'Connell's idea of Hogwarts as a specifically queer elsewhere, which helps to explain why there's such a strong queer fandom, despite the absence of any actual textual queerness and despite Rowling's transphobia
0: plus we've been using our wrap-up episodes to find new moments in these books that delight us or arrest us which is a reminder of the pleasures of rereading a favorite book and how we can't
1: help but discover something new every time Mm -hmm. so we're basically going to be doing a whole lot more of that in this episode except that in the middle i'm going to make us think about the idea of post-critique But before we get there, why don't we talk a little bit about some of our favorite, most whimsical and gayest moments in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Excellent. Yes. And I'm going to start us off, and I'm going to tell you, Marcel, that on this rereading, Mm -hmm. I decided that I fucking love The Blast Ended (laughs) scroots. I was reading this book and like laughing out loud to myself, just like, <laughs> what ridiculous animals. It's just that scene when Hermione's is like, how come some of them have like spikes on them? And Hagrid's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The male ones are covered in knives and the female ones suck your blood. <laughs> you know,
0: there are two genders and both of them kill you. These are the two genders, Knives and
1: Bloodsucker. <laughs> yeah. And the kids are just like, why are you like this? Like, what are we learning? What is the pedagogical like function of this <laughs> lesson? <laughs> I mean, it's pure chaos. And we have talked about the pure chaos that is Hagrid before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the Gailey Prophets reading of Hagrid as trans points to something that I think a lot of queer readings of Hagrid C, which is that Hagrid's chaos feels queer a lot of the time. And the queer chaos of Hagrid's deep affection for the blast-ended Scrooots. Like, nobody could love them except <laughs> for Hagrid. Like, these creatures have no purpose, no function. They're just teeth and claws and explosions and they grow to six feet long and kill each other. And Hagrid doesn't know what they eat. And there's no lesson play. There's nothing. There's nothing. But they're magical. <laughs> just makes me so happy.
0: I have to say, Hannah, I've never thought about the blast-ended Scroots as an example of something joyful or taken any kind of pleasure in reading about them before. But I think that you may have just fundamentally changed my relationship to this book.
1: I'm calling it now, Blast Ended scruts or Queer Culture. Beautiful.
0: Okay. Well, you know that I am a person who really loves gossip and I really love <laughs> thwarted teenage romances. Like, my favorite part of Romeo and Juliet is that they die. <laughs> That's not actually true. I just take so much pleasure in in the heartbreak of it, you know? It's just, what can I say? This is where I'm at emotionally. So, what I want to talk about, and it's something we've talked about before, is the fact that Ron is absolutely in love with Victor Crumb. And the Harry Potter world, Harry Potter as our narrator, all of these things, like it's a it's a fiercely heteronormative world. And so the way that Harry encounters Ron's very obvious infatuation with Victor Crumb and the way that Ron probably even internalizes and understands his own infatuation with Victor Crumb is pretty strictly framed as though it's just the experience of being a fan. And then it's sort of further triangulated through Hermione because when at the Yule Ball, Ron realizes that Hermione is on a date with Victor Crumb, And he gets really upset and really mad. Mm -hmm. Everybody assumes that he's really mad because he has a crush on Hermione. But there's no textual evidence for this. He is mad because one of his best friends is on a date with his beloved Quidditch player. And, oh my God, I will die on the hill that Ron (laughs) is in love with Victor Crumb and that this, like, thwarted teenage romance because of heteronormativity is one of the one of the most like (laughs) devastating and satisfying pleasures
1: of
0: reading this novel
1: the only thing that would make it better is if they both died at the end
0: after getting married in secret and doing it but if they are going to do it (laughs) they got to be 18 or older
1: yeah so Somebody go find the fan fiction that definitely exists where Ron reencounters encounters Crumb after graduating from Hogwarts and the two of them have a steamy romance. Send it to Marcel now. She wants it. That's what I want. Here's the thing, dear listeners. Marcel, being in the midst of a move, requested an episode about gay whimsy. But like the absolute killjoy I am, I'm going to transform whimsy into theory (laughs) in Transfiguration class. Typical. All right, Marcel, are you ready to learn a little bit about post-critique?
0: You know what? Yes, I am. And this is one of those really exciting episodes for me because I have never even heard this term before. And so Hannah, you are the instructor consider me the empty vessel here to be filled up with your knowledge in the gayest
1: and most whimsical way possible. Okay. So in that case, I should probably start off by explaining which critique, post critique is post of, which is to say critical theory. So we're talking about post critical theory. That's what post critique is. So we talked about this just last episode, but critical theory is a kind of umbrella term for a way of thinking about power that attends to structural and systemic forces rather than individual actions or choices. So, like, we talked about critical race theory, right, and how you need to, like, think about structural racism embedded in laws and policies rather than, like, individual, personal racist ideas. Right. Right. Okay. And so the critical frameworks and methodologies and lenses that tend to accompany critical theory treat texts, so books, movies, TV, whatever sort of cultural object we're talking about, in a similar way. So critical methodologies tend to look at how texts are entangled in larger forces of power rather than thinking about, say, the intentions and choices of the author as a unique individual.
0: So, sort of like when we talk about conventions in and politics of mainstream publishing, rather than attributing every single thing that happens in a book to the author.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's one example of a methodology that is putting aside authorial intention. In general, the sort of arrival of critical theory in literary studies was about saying, like, We are no longer going to think about, like, the biography of the author as the primary way through which this should be read. Mm -hmm. And instead, we're going to think about, like, how is this text functioning? How is it operating? We do that all the time. You and I here in this (laughs) podcast. We do that all the time. We are constantly using critical theory. (laughs) That's why we care so little about the author. Precisely. That is the reason why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the only reason why. (laughs) So... Just as critical theory asks how power functions at a systemic level and how it hides those functions from us, because that's an important part of it, critique as an activity wants us to ask how texts function and what they're hiding from us. So critique as a reading method tends to feel a little bit suspicious, or as some critics have put it, paranoid. Mm-hmm. The idea is that we can't take the text's words for what they mean. Like, we can't believe the book when it tells us what it's about. And we can't believe the author when they tell us what the book is about. As critical readers, we have to dig a little deeper. In recent years, however, scholars have started to ask about what critique as a whole set of methods leaves out. So, like, what gets lost when we're always reading texts suspiciously? Is it... is it fun? Yes! (laughs) And kind of feeling in general. So, the key theorist of post-critique is Rita Felsky, who is a feminist scholar who's particularly interested in the role of pleasure and of affect, which... I don't want to theorize at length here, and so I'm going to gloss as a fancy way that scholars say feeling. It's a bit reductive, but like for the purposes <laughs> of our conversation today, affect is just academic for feelings. So Velsky's interested in the role of pleasure and feeling in literary criticism. So in her book, The Uses of Literature, she argues our readings should, quote, blend analysis and attachment, criticism and love, end quote. You know...
0: It took me a long time as a student to really understand why straw man arguments, you know, where you set up an argument for the sole purpose of winning the argument, why these kinds of arguments are not useful. Because I think for a lot of students, this seems like the logical way to do criticism, right? Like you find a thing that you recognize as bad and then you explain why it's bad and then ta-da, <laughs> you've done criticism. But what you're describing here, what what Felski is suggesting is much more interesting and challenging. And so instead of just picking out something that registers immediately as bad and easy to tear apart, you focus instead on something that makes you feel a way, and then you engage with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, Also a lot more vulnerable to, like, attach yourself to an object of critique that you also, like, have feelings about. So one model of, you know, Felsky's idea of blending criticism and love is focusing less on what the text itself is doing ideologically and more on what we as readers do with the text. So in that sense, post-critique has a lot in common with some fields of cultural studies, like Stuart Hall's argument. Stuart Hall is this major figure in the history of cultural studies. But he had this really important argument that ideologies are encoded in popular culture, right, like ideologies of capitalism and white supremacy, but the audiences still have the autonomy to decode popular culture in resistant ways, particularly through collective action. And so A lot of fan studies scholars really pick up Hall's idea of encoding and decoding to show how, like, the way that fans engage with something isn't automatically ideologically complicit with the original production itself. So this kind of thinking about the importance of, like, readerly agency in relation to text and about resistant reading and reinterpretation as a kind of collective action, that's all really foundational to fan studies scholarship – Again, I'm doing a lot of alluding, but like, (laughs) fan study scholarship, also a conversation for another day. We're talking about post-critique. Stay on topic, Marcel. God. Okay, sorry. (laughs) So, other models of post-critique include the idea of encountering texts without an idea already in mind of what we're going to find there. And this is key, Marcel, for your sort of point about straw man arguments, Mm -hmm. right? So... If I want to do a feminist reading of a thing and so I go looking for something that I have already decided in advance is not feminist and so I'm here with my feminist skill set to point out the ways in which it's not feminist, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a particular readerly approach and, like, maybe not always the best way of, like, discovering something new about a text because I'm only going to find what I already decided I was looking for.
0: Yeah.
1: So, Toral Moy, who is another scholar of post-critique, describes this as, quote, a willingness to look and see to pay maximal attention to the words on the page. And Konoe Nishikawa has described a similar method in the form of, quote, scholarship that is oriented around empirical analysis of textual objects that might help us to tune in to what objects can teach us to appreciate those details that challenge our accustomed Ways of looking at things. End quote. So what Nishikawa is talking about here is like how we can, if we look back at like a historical archive and stop assuming that we know what's already in there, we might actually find things that surprise us. But we have a tendency as scholars to go into an archive or a text already having decided that we know what's in there. And so it can be really difficult to encounter a text without having decided we already know what's in there. But if we can figure out how to do that, we might find, like, really different, interesting things to notice. Is this why I like to go to
0: movies without watching
1: the trailers? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The less I know about it, The better. Sometimes the less you know about it, right? That's a particular kind of pleasure. You know how different a reading experience is if you pick up a book that you have heard nothing about? You don't know who the author is. You don't know what other people are saying about it. You don't know what the sort of cultural consensus about its significance is. You know nothing. You're just going into this book and just like seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. And it can surprise you in ways that you might not be surprised if you pick up a book after you have already read 500 reviews of it and all of the circulating paratexts and author blurbs. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which encountering all of this other information really, like, predisposes you towards things in a particular way. And that's kind of what the job of reviewing and publishing and media in general is is. It's to, like, predispose us as readers or viewers to experience culture in particular ways. It's to teach us in advance how we ought to be reading the thing that we're reading. And that's, like, none of us, we can't read anything in a vacuum. That's a fantasy. But it's interesting to think about, like, how can we sometimes strip some of that framing away and maybe see the stuff that we're not already told we should be looking for? Mm-hmm. So both of those forms of post-critique are are about empowering the reader to do with the text as they will and to make of the text what they want to make of the text and to, like, feel about it the way they will feel about it. You probably won't be surprised to hear that there have been some really strong critiques of post-critique.
0: Yes, that That makes sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the key one is its tendency away from politics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are versions of post-critique that absolutely sound like a scholarly version of the, like, let people enjoy things meme. Mm-hmm. Right? The, like, oh, oh my God, everybody stop pointing out what's wrong with everything. Just let people like things. My response to that is always Kate Wagner's excellent article, don't let people enjoy things. <laughs> I'm going to quote from it because I just love it. She writes There are unlimited problems with let people enjoy things, henceforth abbreviated as LPET. <laughs> First and foremost among them, the fact that the franchises in question, Game of Thrones and Marvel Comics, those are the ones she's writing about, are multi billion dollar corporate entities engineered to entertain in the same way Doritos are made so that you can't eat just one. <laughs> So this is Kate Wagner's like, "Mm, we can't just say let people enjoy things as though things are created in a vacuum. That's not how things work. (laughs) So can you tell Marcel that I have a really hard time talking about post-critique without talking about critique?
0: You know, Hannah, I sympathize because I struggle to learn about critique without correcting its potential weaknesses. For example, as a chip enthusiast, I need to interject here and say that bet you can't eat just one is a former slogan of Lay's potato chips, not Doritos, but the point still stands.
1: (laughs) You win this round, Cosman. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) So chips aside, the strongest resistance to post-critique has come from critical race studies as a field, particularly as a field in which paranoia and suspicion doesn't only make perfect sense, but is, in fact, as Kay Alex pointed out to us in our last episode, a survival tactic. Mm -hmm. Like you have to learn, Black people have to learn how to always be suspiciously looking at systems. Right, right. One of my favorite articulations of this came from Twitter. Back in February, there was a flurry of discussion about critique versus post-critique on cool academic Twitter. And Kyla Wazana Tompkins wrote, quote, Here's what I have to say to the delightful promise of unproblematized white pleasure. Your pleasures are a form of terrorism for everybody else in the world, end quote. All of which is to say, we absolutely cannot and must not put down critique as a tool. It remains vital and necessary. And also, at the same time, I think post-critique has some really interesting ideas to offer us, not least the way it challenges the idea that the meaning of a text lies within the text itself, right? That, like, this text is sexist because, look, I found sexism in the text, rather than the idea that texts are activated via our interactions with them. So, texts are what we do with them. So, a lot of the time, the texts we want to interact with are the ones that we love, the ones that we have an affective or emotional investment in. That kind of explains why people get sort of defensive. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly because it can feel hard to reconcile the idea or the feeling of loving a text with the idea that there are things in that text that need to be critiqued. Mm -hmm. And this is also why so often when scholars are trying to articulate post-critique, fans come along and are like, Bitch, we have been doing this for years. (laughs) Do not tell us about the idea that you can love something and be critical of it at the same time. Like, we invented that. Thank you very much. (laughs) May I direct you to an archive of our own, which is like 10 years of evidence of like how incredibly good people are at doing exactly this. I mean, this tendency in
0: academia to, like, invent a theory for something that people outside of academia have been doing forever is just the most, the most
1: academic thing I think (laughs) of. I can think of. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So... With all of this in mind, I'm going to suggest that we return to the Goblet of Fire again and ask ourselves, what are the pleasurable places where I, as a reader, am encountering or interacting with this text? That is a great plan,
0: Hannah. Let's do it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. All right. Now that we've theoretically grounded the concept of fun, why don't we actually have a little bit of it in
1: Owls? Amazing. So I would argue that Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, despite being a book in which some really terrible dark things happen, is also a book with like a lot of fun in it it's a fan favorite right prisoner of
0: azkaban fan favorite goblet of fire fan favorite in a way that the first
1: two eh, eh, maybe maybe less so but i think there's some interesting reasons why this one is so fun to read and i think part of that is like not only it's eventfulness like a lot of stuff happens but that stuff is like full of pomp and circumstance and performance and ceremony. It's like, things happen that we get to have described to us that are, like, things it would be genuinely fun to go to. Yeah, yeah. I think I would like to watch kids try to escape dragons. Maybe (laughs) not. That might stress (laughs) me out.
0: But you're right, though. And also, like, even the things that Harry isn't participating in, you know, as the surrogate for the reader, like, He's witnessing these things for the first time. And so his sort of awe and wonder at the extent of the magical world is then transferred over to us as we're reading it. And we're like, oh my God, there's a carriage in the
1: sky with giant Palomino horses. <laughs> Yeah, things we didn't know were possible because Harry didn't know they were possible. Like, so much of what happens in the first few books is private or small group experiences that we can vicariously participate in by being in Harry's perspective. So, like, you know, going into the Chamber of Secrets or, like, taking a class. But Goblet of Fire is, like, all about public events Mm -hmm. that are ceremonial, that have this very intentional thinking about being appealing and exciting to an audience. Mm -hmm. So, like, Wizarding World Cup, entrances for Beauxbatons and Durmstrang, Mm -hmm. the putting your name into the Goblet of Fire, the ceremonial selecting of the champions, all three of the tasks, the Yule Ball. Like, it's just... Oh, yeah. ...event after event, ceremony after ceremony, all created in a way that's, like... It would just be cool to see.
0: Oh, and this is the first book where Harry gets to go to Hogsmeade, not having to go in secret. (laughs) Yeah. Like he just gets not under his cloak. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you're right. This is a book that is chock a block with fun things to do.
1: (laughs) And the book is really interested in how fun those things are to do because it talks a lot about. Audiences and audience pleasure. And it talks a lot about the actual experience of mediation. So, like, I really thought this time around about the like special glasses that Harry and Hermione and Ron get to watch the Wizarding World Cup and how it's like you can slow things down and you can speed things up and that it's thinking not just about the cool event, but how we actually watch the cool event and, like, what it would be like to actually get to be there in person. And even just the sort of affective experience of, like, watching live sports, which is, in part, what makes live sports so exciting, is that they are happening in this real time, that, like, you might blink and miss something, that, like, even televised, there's this, like, okay, there's going to be a replay, and if something important happens, it's going to stop, and they're going to tell you what's happening. But, like, when you are there in person, it's like... You gotta watch. You gotta watch. It's happening right now. Like, liveness is very exciting. One of the things that I
0: was thinking a lot about this read-through was... How the Triwizard Tournament has to be really fun for all of the other students who are spectating, because otherwise, like, there's no Quidditch. Quidditch has been canceled. I mean, that is rude.
1: Like, because most of the kids, that's their, like, only recreational activity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: And there's all of this excitement leading up to the choosing of the champions, and then... It's just supposed to be three students out of these hundreds of other kids who are just walking around living their normal lives. So the spectatorship itself has to be really incredible. Like the events that they're witnessing have to be really incredible. And so one of the reasons why, I don't know why American Gladiators is coming to mind, but... If any of you have (laughs) ever seen American Gladiators, where you're just like watching these people compete in these things and you're sort of imagining yourself there doing it, even though, like, I would never. (laughs) Oh, no, could never, would never, never, could never try to compete in such an activity.
1: But watching it is really fun. You're hitting on something that I think is really key to the pleasure for the students of watching the Tri Wizard tournament, which is that. It's their peers who are competing and they're competing using a skill set that the rest of the students either have or are in the process of acquiring. And so there's this real possibility of like imagining yourself into that position and doing that kind of like, what is it, Monday morning quarterbacking? Is that the phrase? I have no idea what you're saying right now. (laughs) I think... (laughs) A sports version of backseat driving where you're like, if I was doing it, how would I be doing it? And you know that particular pleasure of, like, watching people do a thing that, like, you are not good enough to be doing it competitively, but you understand it well enough that you can have some real opinions about how other people are doing it? Oh, absolutely. That's a real sweet spot. Like, I'm not bitter because there's no shot I ever would have competed in this but <laughs> I understand it well enough that I can be like, oh oh my God, I can't believe you didn't make that pass. <laughs> I don't know what I'm referring to here. I don't understand a single sport. The closest <laughs> that gets for me is competitive horseback riding, which is like the only sport I have ever competed in. Because you were a horse girl, I was a horse girl, and like competed in shows and like got ribbons and stuff. And so, understand it well enough to be like, oh, you know what happened there? Oh, you see, mm, you see what you did? Yeah, I see, I see what happened here. <laughs> Tried to force a half step in before that jump, and it slowed the horse's momentum too much, took down the top pole. I'm going to request a new Patreon tier where you just talk about horseback riding. <laughs> Amateur commentary on competitive horseback riding. But it's so interesting that there is built into this book all of these kinds of vicarious spectatorship of exciting public events, where it's like kids who love Quidditch getting to watch the best Quidditch players and think like, oh, the Ronsky feint, what a cool move. I'm going to go practice that. And then like kids who are learning magic, getting to watch the best of their peers do magical challenges and being like, oh, I can't believe he used that. Like, I can't believe Victor Crumb didn't think to use a broom. He's like a great flyer. You absolutely should have used a broom. (laughs) So like that's built into so much of this book. And then it positions us as readers, I think even closer to the text, because like, there are all of those other people in the book who are also watching and vicariously participating in these spectacles. So it's not like I'm watching them watching. It's like, I am also in the crowd, also watching. Oh, okay. I think the place where this like,
0: really comes alive for me, and this sort of you know, is going to bring us back to the gay pleasure that I take in this (laughs) novel. But the Yule Ball and like the anxiety leading up to the Yule Ball of like trying to get a date and then like attending and being in awe of all of the people's outfits and how everybody's dressed and like high school dances are fraught. (laughs) (laughs) They are fraught (laughs) events, but there's something about getting all dressed up to go to an event that is really, really pleasurable. Like, before you get to the actual event itself, like, just the the anticipation and the, what are you going to wear? How are you going to transform your moldy gown into something that isn't moldy? You know, (laughs) like, we've all been
1: there. And I do think the book really captures that way that, the lead-up to the event is more significant than the event itself, Mm -hmm. because there's so much excitement in the lead-up to the Yule Ball, and then the Yule Ball is distinctly disappointing for almost everyone involved. (laughs)
0: Like, it's such a letdown. Except possibly for Fleur Delacour and Roger Davies, but, like, unclear, you know? have a great
1: (laughs) time. Yeah, absolutely. So I think fundamental to a lot of the pleasure of The Goblet of Fire connects back to that sort of original argument we've been making about like Hogwarts as an elsewhere, the imaginative participation in this world. And like this book in particular is really saying like the wizarding world is sort of bigger than we showed you originally. There's lots of people in it. There are fun events there are like these other schools and it's like, how does this open up the world that little bit more in a way that like gives us even more space to be like, yes, I could be at the Wizarding World Cup. I could be at one of those other schools. I could be sitting in that crowd backseat. <laughs> backseat quarterbacking, which really sounds like a sex act. I, I mean... Backseat quarterbacking is absolutely a sex act. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So much of this book is about those, like, public participatory events right up until Harry and Cedric get teleport-keyed away to the graveyard. Yeah. And then I guess that's also kind of public if you're a Death Eater. I would call that a (laughs) counter-public. It is, because it's also a spectacular event. Like, it's a spectacle just for a different public. A counter-public. We
0: have to do an episode about Counterpublics, but where we talk about the Death Eaters and not like
1: the cool queer Counterpublics, but the bad ones. <laughs> We're absolutely not doing that. <laughs> Take that, Michael Warner. I do think, though, it is fun to think about what is fun about these books and why they're fun.
0: I agree. I know that we're at the end of this segment, but I also really just want to say that the prefect bathroom and the fact that those taps (laughs) pour out like wild and wacky colors and bubbles and foams and stuff, even the bathroom is fun in this book. Everything is so gratuitously
1: whimsical and it's just (laughs) impractical and delightful. Not unlike the blast-ended scroots. (laughs) Perfect. Full Mm -hmm. circle. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at owitchplease. Witch, Please is
0: produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our producer, Hannah Rehack,
1: a.k.a coach. Thanks, coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review, which means you have to review us if you want to hear Marcel make her mouth do weird things at odds with her brain. For example,
0: thanks this week to Margaret1234, Tea and, chocolate, and Caroline Alain or Carolina Line, could be either
1: or Carolina Line <gasps> Carolina Line If you want to hear even more from us don't forget to head over to patreoncom slash please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you special thanks to everyone who supports us on patreon we love you the most our love can be bought That's just how it works. (laughs) Kidding! We just recorded a bonus interview, getting to know our new producer better. It was an absolute blast, and we cyberbullied Marcel, and you really don't want to miss it. (laughs) That's true. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with a whole new focus and another special guest. But until then... Later, witches!